You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm a co-founder of Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace in Seattle. Today I have with me Daniel Backer, longtime friend and collaborator of mine from my more writing days. He's a novelist. He's written books like Abraham, Lionel Lancet, and The Right Vibe. You also do a lot of literature education on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. You can find him on YouTube, Off the Wall Novels, and TikTok and Instagram as Daniel Backer, author. Hey, Daniel. Actually, I don't Daniel. I don't don't think I've ever called you Daniel in my entire life. Hi, Danny. Hi. I transitioned to Daniel and then back to Danny. So either way... What what happened? You thought it was like too maybe too boyish and you want to go pro or what? Well, so that was on my mind, but I had a boss named Danny and he made it perfectly clear that he was the Danny in the room. And so I went by Daniel and my parents had kind of called me Daniel too growing up. So it wasn't completely absurd. But then uh, realizing that was the reason I started going by Daniel, I was like, oh, that is actually pretty silly. I'm just going to be Danny now. So you have a boss who's like reassigned your name. <laughs> Actually, he served as the inspiration for the character Damien in my uh, my novel. And I know he will never listen to this podcast episode, so I feel comfortable saying that. Wow. Damien also just has such context to it as well. As a name, I just assume someone named that is bad from the start. Should I even think that? I mean, there's the satanic thing going on from... Is that the Omen? Is that right? Who's the guy who wrote Steppenwolf? Hess? Herman Hess? Yeah, I feel like there's a there's a Damien. I guess there's Father Damien who who worked in Hawaii with leprosy. He was good. Somebody gets <laughs> that guy. That's a pretty noble thing. That counteracts the satanic implications, I think. There's a, you associate it with Satanism, though. That's a weird opening to the show. 100%. I'm glad we got right into it, though. We wasted no time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I should probably introduce what's the point of this show. Danny and I have been talking about how to do this for a long time. We're both passionate about literature. Uh, I've learned a lot from Danny. His novels are are super fun and play with ideas in really interesting ways. So of course, we would be friends. And uh, as much as I like more high literary fiction, and you're someone I associate very strongly with uh, sort of contemporary fiction, especially like the postmodern fiction of the second half of the 20th century, I also like genre fiction. Bad books, bad books where there are innumerable sequels, books that are meant to titillate. Uh, You might know genre fiction from things like detective stories are quite uh, popular for this, where there's a whole uh, industry around writing zombie books and zombie books where there are, you know, 10, 15, 20 books in a row. Some are much less Uh, apocalyptic fiction, prepper fiction, which sort of like plays into fantasies about the end of the world, whether there's going to be an electromagnetic pulse that disrupts all electrical motors and what that looks like. Obviously, erotica is super popular and super prolific, and I imagine quite profitable as well. Danny, you missed an opportunity there unless you have a pen name I don't know about romance, mystery, these are like quite tropey genres. And the way that I wanted to frame this show is that there's a lot of cli-fi that is high literary fiction. I think Mm -hmm. things like The Parable of the Talents, Parable of the Sower, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, perhaps the most like high literary version here too is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Some Cormac McCarthy is so impenetrably difficult to read. It's often closer to something like Melville where I'm like, okay, I need like modernist close reading techniques to just make it through this at all. And I'm still not getting all of the meaning and all of the illusion that is happening here. So I just want to talk about how long do I need to wait for there to be climate fiction that is genre and bad and serialized in such a way 
And is that how you know that climate change is something that people actually care about? Well, I think that if you're realizing that there's a dearth of that sort of thing in the marketplace, then the name on that novel would probably be Ross Canyon. So there's an opportunity mm. here. There's a vacuum that you could definitely fill. I think a big issue with a lot of serious literature is that they shirk so many conventions of what make a story work that I find myself sometimes reading more difficult books and being like, why is this 700 pages and not two? Because when you have a plot, I think it creates a metric and plots aren't for everybody. You don't have to like a plot, but there's something nice about a plot that you're like, oh, okay, it feels done now, or it feels like at the middle part or the beginning. Like the, I think the conventions are very useful. And mm -hmm. so I think that's something that kind of drew me to postmodern fiction is that they're very intentionally in dialogue with more traditional narratives. And so even if they're trying to subvert it, you often do get some sort of an appeal to a traditional plot, even if they are trying to twist it into a pretzel as they're going. So that has been pretty much the thing that's gotten me interested in it, because as literary as the stuff is I like to read, I like something that does entertain me. You know, I I like to indulge in the big ideas and important things about being human. But part of that is entertainment and having an arc, even if uh, some important people think that we're like finished with the idea of a story as something that's meaningful to humans. So I don't know if that answers your question, but oh, I think you're blowing some listeners minds right now that the idea of plot might, might be old hat at this point, which I think in some ways, I think act structures is programmed into our brains for what to expect in a story to get, to feel fully paid off and validated for investing the time in it. And I mean, I know you're a big Thomas Pynchon fan and you had me read The Crying a Lot 49 ahead of this. And before that, I'd only ever seen Inherent Vice, which cracked me up too. I thought that movie was brilliantly funny because I started watching it. I was like, why do people say this movie's complicated? I don't get it. Sort of a straightforward detective story. He's going, he's following leads. And then like 40 minutes into it, I was like, oh my God, what is even, this? is there a plot? And I remember, did you ever read the Illuminatus books, the Robert Anton Wilson series earlier but i've not thomas pynchon is like the same i feel like and also uh, i think they're both la people i think ish or at least their stuff is often in la but in the illuminatus books it's like all conspiracies are simultaneously true even contradictory ones mm. so you'll have things where you're like i thought this wasn't all of these things coexist at the same time and it's not really about the plot it's almost just about being in that place and the hilarity of story and do stories matter i don't feel like i'm smart enough to understand what is trying to be said by that pensions like this too right mm -hmm. why do you need to say this so i think the criticism of a lot of this experimental stuff is true in a lot of cases is that it can be just navel gazing it can just be an author trying to show off how experimental and strange they can be but i think the standouts of postmodern fiction and experimental fiction do a great job of subverting stories and ideas in a way that feels very meaningful to people's lives. And so, for example, like I'm rereading V by Thomas Pynchon right now, and one of the main themes in it is that myths are the things that guide people's decision making, especially people in power, is that they will commonly evoke a myth in order to justify certain actions, certain atrocities, and uh, specifically like a tenant of fascism is evoking a mythic past. So that's like pretty important putting that in there. But then this kind of goes without saying, but these are myths. These are not true. They're not historical documents. They're stories that people often tell. The unreliable narrator is a popular thing in many different literary forms, but especially in postmodern fiction when they're trying to engage 
history and storytelling and myths, they blur all of those things together so that they're saying that like, when we talk about the past, we're telling a story and we're telling a myth, but it's more complicated than just that because they're also saying that this is what makes us human. And so one of the main themes of V is that myths are made up and they justify atrocities, but to get rid of them makes us as inanimate as the material objects in the room around you. And so his thesis at the end of this is kind of like, keep cool, but care that you on some sense sort of have to detach yourself from the historical train tracks that you're on because they are fraudulent. But at the same time, you do need some utilitarian myths just to have a soul and to have emotions and to have relationships with other people. Which if people have any association with postmodernism at this point, depending on your political background, you might associate it with criticism from people like Jordan Peterson, who are saying saying postmodernism is just about the death of truth and that there's there's sort of a it leads to a cultural dead end of nihilism and despair. And what you've just said struck me as none of those things. Where do you think that gets twisted along the way? Or I mean, yeah, we can start there. I think, truth be told, the criticisms that people like Jordan Peterson have, I think are valid-ish, but I don't think he gives a very charitable interpretation of it because postmodernism is a lot of different things and not a lot of postmodern thinkers necessarily agree with each other on everything. And so it's almost like when you hear someone criticize something without demonstrating their familiarity with it, you're kind of like, yeah, you may be right, but like that's actually ours to criticize because it's important to us. But I mean, postmodernism can re- refer to an era, to a sensibility, to an aesthetic. Sort of the, the cop out that I give myself sometimes is that I really try to ground the conversation in art because I notice that when people are not familiar with postmodernism, the first thing they try to do is turn it on itself is that they're already going meta before they've even kind of mastered the fundamentals, which is just a method of questioning. It's it's questioning some fundamental assumptions, asking the question, what about the way we're asking the question is determining the sort of answers that are coming up? You know, And I think maybe the super charitable interpretation of postmodernism is that it's not supposed to be a comprehensive worldview. It's a tool in your toolbox. So, and like a classic example is like, what about the way that we divide men and women influences the answers that we come to when we ask questions about what is a man, what is a woman? And it doesn't necessarily come up with conclusions, but it's it's just asking you to say, hey, let's let's take a look at our categories for a second. What about the way that we've created these categories might influence the conclusions that we reach? Interesting. And if you take for granted the the stuff you said about myth as pretty core to postmodernism, you might say the idea of what makes a man and what makes a woman are myths that different cultures have stories that they tell ourselves that these are not just inherently fixed, immutable characteristics. In fact, there's a lot of culture that's tied up in here and that how we engage with those myths changes the answers that we might receive from them. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think following that thread, like one of the classic ones is that men are traditionally associated with dominance and women are traditionally associated with submission. And so they're basically just asking, like, how do we drag that into conversations where it doesn't belong? And so, like, I get people's frustration with it, because if you are used to just kind of tracking a traditional logical thread and you hear that, like, oh, Derrida said logic is not necessarily always great. Like, I get why Jordan Peterson freaks out about that, because he's built his life and career on this notion of objectivity, which I'm, you know, highly critical of on my TikTok in particular, because I think often people will 
use the word objective just as a rhetorical strategy. And even though I think we can come to some objective observations about the world, I like to use the word objective-ish, is that at the end of the day, we're always going to be observing the world through the holes in our face and experiencing things in a mitigated way. And so like, even though I understand why people think it's very nihilistic, I don't think they've always actually even read the thinkers that are associated with these ideas. And so almost talking out of two sides of my mouth, people who are familiar with postmodernism sometimes get frustrated that it doesn't have enough conclusive information within it. But again, that's that's kind of why I like to put it mostly within an artistic framework, because most people don't read fiction and be like, wait a minute, did this really happen? Like there's a suspension of disbelief. And I think that's where postmodernism is most interesting. But I find arguing about postmodernism is a total dead end. And trying to make a postmodern criticism of postmodernism is a total waste of time, even if it's kind of fun. You know, <laughs> you don't really get it. What are we supposed to do with this podcast now, man? I guess I got more time to fill. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I guess it's it's not a waste of time, but I just find that usually, uh, again, the, the criticism that postmodernism undoes itself is usually made by people like as they're learning about it. Mm. Is that they're like, it questions fundamental assumptions. But what about the fundamental assumptions of postmodernism? It's like, well, yeah, but one of their tenets is that they think that discourse is something where you organize the parameters. And so like they're organizing the parameters and just for utilitarian sake, they're like, well, let, let's like maybe not undo the discourse before we know what it is. But I think there's also a reason that postmodernism as an era is considered kind of over in a lot of ways. And like metamodernism is, I think, more in vogue in critical circles because it sort of takes the critical incredulity of postmodernism, but then is also like, okay, but like we need a truth. We need objects. And so like within that realm, there's uh, speculative realism and object-oriented ontology. And they kind of take the best of both worlds is that they're like, we have objects, both uh, material objects that are like in the room with us, but also philosophical objects of, of uh, conception, like within your mind. Mm -hmm. And even though they're like real-ish, there's a part of them that's always a little bit removed from us. So we can't know them completely, but we can sort of build games with them in a way that works for us. I'm going to share with you in something that I've used to anchor my thinking for a long time. It was This insight was one of the main reasons that I figured out that philosophy grad school was not the right fit for me. And I've always associated with postmodernism, but it sounds closer to metamodernism, frankly, where I read Nietzsche's On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. Have you ever read that? Oh, I've not. I'd love to hear. It's a classic. People consider it one of the like like proto-texts of postmodernism, where he talks about how every category, every concept is a lie. Everything is truly unique, yet we are forced by how diverse and numerous the objects in the world are to make sense of them by grouping them. And every grouping is inherently unjust because everything is truly unique. Yet, if you fail to group them in any meaningful way, you you lose your mind because you, if you cannot categorize in any way, it's just undifferentiated mass and you will drown. Your mind will drown. And in some ways that has made I feel like kind of like a more boring King of the Hill, Hank Hill kind of figure in my life, as we've discussed. I'm kind of like conventional in my life where I used to be a little bit more radical and inter interesting and taking the road less traveled. And in some ways, this postmodern or even metamodern insight has caused me to respect tradition a little bit more saying, okay, this is the product of thousands or hundreds of years of evolutionary insight for what makes a stable-ish 
life that is worth living. And I'm more willing to trust it given postmodern. The, the tendency to philosophize with a hammer, to use another Nietzsche phrase that postmodernism gets called, actually in some ways made me like more dispositionally, personally conservative, wanting a more stable, less artsy, anything goes kind of life. Is that metamodernism? That is a fascinating question. The short answer is I don't know. But I do know that, you know, critics of postmodernism, I think, sometimes do gain that people people notice it, like Jordan Peterson and David Foster Wallace, both who criticize postmodernism, albeit in completely different ways. <laughs> Very um, different ways. But yeah. Yeah. And and like I, I definitely like David Foster Wallace's criticism of it more because all of his work is postmodern. Like as much as he was trying to advance it, I think categorically it's postmodernism. I wouldn't die on that hill. I could hear an argument that it was otherwise, but but both David Foster Wallace and Jordan Peterson, um, Jordan Peterson more so, get accused of being conservative. And of course, the cop out for Jordan Peterson is, no, I'm a classical liberal. It's just everything I say is conservative, but uh, a little bit more of a digression. That being said, I find that Buddhism and Buddhist texts and Buddhist philosophy tend to access some of what I consider valuable about postmodernism, but in a more accessible and experiential way. And so sometimes the concept of dharma is interpreted as attachment to certain truths. And so it's not necessarily that we're playing the game of what is true and what is false, but it's like, what notions of solidity are you projecting onto the narratives that you have? And in what ways are you identifying with truths instead of just evaluating if they're true or false. Because one of the biggest criticisms that I have against like this notion of objectivity is that it's it's just a lie, is that people are like, I'm being objective and my emotions and my desires are not influencing the data that I'm processing. And then again, just to shoot on Jordan Peterson one more time, is that like the venom, which he has begun to kind of enact the second part of his career, I think demonstrates more of an attachment to certain ideas that he has than any kind of you know, disinterested, just stating the facts. So yeah, all, all of that is to say that, like, I think that, you know, people do need stability. And maybe where conservatism goes wrong is saying that everyone should have the same exact kind of solidity that I have, or the same kind of stability that I have. As an individual, I don't think those are necessarily bad things to want. But when we attach ourselves to those truths and say this is the the divine truth or the objective truth, that's where I'm kind of like, eh, this just sounds like we're using our desires and opinions to rationalize the data that we're processing. Hmm. What do you make of the presence of red herrings in Pinchin that almost feel laid to mislead? Like there will be people named silly things. What was the example that most cracked me out? There's a couple. What was it uh, Emery Boards? Oh yeah, Genghis Cohen is like a very, a very funny combination. And there's like a bunch of things like that where is it meant to say something? Is it because those words are claimed by cultures, right? They have meanings that precede your reading of the book. And it's meant to play with that. But I can't tell if it's playing with it in a meaningful way or if it's just meaningless wordplay. And <laughs> is that is that postmodernism? See, that, that's the kind of question you end up asking. And you're then you become the guy who says, I don't like modern art. I find modern art to be distasteful and that's not really that fun of a place to be in. But I also don't know what it's doing. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It, for any one of Pynchon's names that he uses, it I think is a coin toss that like this one could mean something. This could just be a silly joke of his because he is a very whimsical writer and he's characterized as being very difficult and people don't, I think, push through that difficulty to realize how cartoonish and absurd it is. 
So, yeah, I mean, for, for any one name, it's it's very difficult to tell. But the more I have read, Pynchon in particular, but also just other postmodern stuff, there often is a thread that isn't always easily grasped on the first read through. And that's a huge barrier to entry. I completely understand. But when I first read this kind of stuff, I would finish these books and just be like, it was cool. There were memorable moments. I have no idea what it is. But the more that I have read them, Crying of Lot 49, for example, I think has a very clear thesis. That doesn't mean that every phenomenon in the book is easy to place within that thesis. But yeah, on subsequent readings, I think that there there definitely is an argument that he's trying to make. But again, that argument is criticizing a traditional way of constructing truth. And so the yield of this thesis or the, or the big takeaway from the book is kind of slippery and not always easy to pin down, but it's there. You know, <laughs> your videos on the book are really good and taught me a lot and also made me appreciate the book a lot more because as it washed over me, I, I enjoy humor and there's plenty in the book to laugh about. You're like, this is absurd. Does this even make sense? These, this world that is being constructed in front of me is just hot nonsense. And it has a, a, a surrealistic comedy to it. And it's the same thing that I mentioned with Inherent Vice, too. You're like... Does this mean anything? Is it signal? Is it noise? Who even cares? The ride is fun. In the same way, too, I also, with capers are often like that. Did, did you watch, um, sorry, I have so many thoughts racing through my head. This, did you watch the Paramount Plus show about the making of The Godfather, The Offer? No, my dad was just telling me about this. I, I, I know that it exists, but I haven't seen it. If you like the golden age of Hollywood and Bob Evans and that whole uh, shtick, it's, it's good. But Bob Evans is trying to get Chinatown produced near the second half of the show. And Chinatown, I've seen a bunch of times. I have no idea how it works. I'm like, so there, you slept with the twin, and then the money goes to who? Who's getting paid off here? And in the offer, they uh, actually don't know what Chinatown is about, and no one can really explain it. And it's sort of a running gag. At least I picked up on it and made me feel less dumb for never really understanding Chinatown. And whenever I read or like Brick, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt, detective, sure. like high school detective, I'm just like, what? Even Big Lebowski, I'm like, wait, he threw out a ringer for a ringer and there's a toe and like who got paid and what What do the Germans even think they're doing? And the thing is, none of it matters because it's all world building and just being in this place. And it's like a set of feelings. And that's all that I'm left with, which is maybe a superficial read. But I had that really strongly here. Teach me more about like what is actually happening in this book and maybe introduce it for people listening. I mean, yeah, noir is a perfect touchstone for this because it achieves a lot of what postmodern noir does, but obviously in a simpler, more straightforward way. But you're exactly right. Like if you watch Chinatown or The Big Lebowski, I think part of the intentional effect of those movies is to disorient you. I've seen The Big Lebowski probably 15 times, and I could not accurately tell you what oh, the plot is thank god this is such a relief i thought this was just me everyone else is watching this loving this movie for for decades and did none of them get it either it sounds like yeah i think the big lebowski is a perfect touchstone for it too because the dude for all of his admiral qualities uh without being too judgmental is dumb like he's not a bright <laughs> guy and he he does not solve the plot like a sherlock holmes type who's you know relying on his just unique sharp intuition the Big Lebowski advances the plot kind of in spite of the main character. And <laughs> I think that that is, you know, what's kind of fun about that. But then what is what's cool is that, you know, Pynchon was a big fan of dime novels and genre fiction and uh, detective and spy fiction in particular. And so oh. I think that's what gives his books so much fun, at least from my perspective, is that they're kind of like a romp 
and, and a play on this traditional genre. And so with the crying of lot 49, you have a housewife who is substituted for the smooth talking detective who relies on his intuition and wit. And I think that at the beginning of the book, there's like a very clear thesis statement about Edda Pamas as a character allows her to access the deeper truths that a detective would traditionally suss out with a more conventional way of assessing the truth. And that it's the fact that she's able to empathize with other people and see their pain. And he beautifully puts this into an image with her tears. And that's one of the reasons it's called the crying of lot 49 is that she has a lens of tears that are always filling her eyes that seemingly distort the information that's going through them. And she relies on this instead of a logical thread tracking suspects, this, that, or the other. And if I remember correctly, the crying of lot 49 ends on a very ambiguous note. You get to like the crying of lot 49, but you don't actually get to see the scene of them at the auction of uh, whatever lot 49 is supposed to be. I might. I think it's ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the comments that I make in the video is that her last character action is that she has to sit back and await the crying of lot 49 in her own story. And I think I could be reading too deep into this, but I think that this is a comment on her marginalization in a male dominated world. And I think that it's, it's kind of a bittersweet ending is that she gets to be our protagonist and she gets to, in some ways, unravel this big conspiracy. But then at the end, in her own story, she kind of has to sit back and watch the men sell property in front of her and suss out this inheritance that was really supposed to be for her. And I mean, we can we can explode this conversation into different notions of the Oedipus complex and ways that that's instantiated in symbols within society. But I, I think that more than anything, it's it is a play on the detective genre and a critique of scientific rationalism and traditional ways of constructing meaning. Yeah, beautiful thoughts. It's also possible that, I mean, the Oedipus complex, both in pop culture and also in literary criticism, is extremely old, you know, thousands of years old. And so just, just naming someone Oedipus already could be a red herring or like a misleading thing because it, there's so much meaning already tied up in it. That's the most frustrating part of reading Pinchon is that like, especially with a short book like that, you're like, oh, I'm going to breeze through this in an afternoon. And then like in the first line, her name is Oedipa Moss. And you're all like, oh, I got to hit Wikipedia for a second. Like I've got to, I've got to unpack this already. And like a single paragraph will send you on a little, little journey like that. I wish there was more play with genre in climate fiction because to date it hasn't been in the same kind of playfulness that I long to see. Like, for instance, one of my favorite SNL sketches ever, and I've never been able to find it because NBC is so stingy about what they allow to be put onto YouTube, but there's a Kelsey Grammer sketch when he was hosting, and he was a detective, and it's one of those, like, you knock on the door, and everything they say is some sort of metaphor of it. The only metaphorical illusion that he has is burrito-related. So he'll be like... <laughs> <laughs> she was. She walked into my office like a warm burrito on a cold Chicago night, and it's like every like every single thing that he has is burrito related. I love that. It's one of those sketches that barely made the show. You could tell it was like the last ten minutes, and Lauren Michaels was like, "Whatever, the burrito sketch is fine, I guess." <laughs> <laughs> but I wish there were climate books that approached this level of mainstream acceptability, because people read a lot of this stuff too. I've even seen 
um, the effects on loneliness of people rewatching sitcoms. There's something inherently comforting about rewatching The Office for the billionth time. Okay. And there's also a literary version of this too with the genre. So like one of my friend's older sisters, I see her on Goodreads sometimes. And it seems like she reads like 500 mysteries a year. I can't even keep up with how many mystery novels this woman reads. How much titillation can one person stand in a lifetime? I'm not sure. She might be over her allotment. But there is something that's having like the tropes that are regularized that you are just re-experiencing that is like really, it feels like home in a way. And literary fiction does not feel like that. So we've been talking, David Foster Wallace has been referenced. I've been reading Infinite Jest for like six months at this point and psyching myself up to read it. I have a good time every time, except for thoughts of all the terrible stuff he did to Mary Carr. You put that aside and try to appreciate this landmark novel. It's work. It's not really like fun in the same way that I want to experience the familiarity of literary conventions that make me feel at home. I'm being challenged. I'm being toyed with. Mm -hmm. I'm being subverted. I don't want to be subverted in my free time. There's a line, I think, on Parks and Rec where one of the characters is like, sorry, Charlie Kaufman, people have work in the morning. Or I, I butchered the quote, but it's something like that, that like, yeah, I think it, it can be exhausting. A lot of the hyper experimentation and whatnot. But um, I think for climate fiction is that maybe it could seem like it's making light of a pretty serious issue that we haven't had closure on yet. And so like, I can kind of see that there might be some resistance to maybe parroting or satirizing the genre. But um, at the same time, I would love to see that, especially as someone who is like not as familiar with climate fiction, like the postmodern climate novel, I think is, is a super interesting notion. And on, on that note too, I know that like William Volman, I think has written a lot of nonfiction on climate and then also a lot of postmodern fiction. So maybe if there's somebody to do it, it would, it would probably be him. I think I've read or at least one. <laughs> yeah, it'd be Ralph Keenan or there you go. <laughs> Roz with Z's. Yeah, uh, I think I've read at least one of his, maybe two even. Yeah, it wouldn't be something nearly so highbrow or if it would be postmodern, it would be so in a way that would be playing with convention so that there's like there's an awareness that they're playing with an established genre and they're poking fun of it while also affirming it. Something that's metamodern is what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about genre fiction. Some of these books are like, if you take apocalypse fiction, these are guilty pleasures of mine, some of which are terrible, truly. Some of them have politics that will make you want to barf and you'll have to rage quit. But some of them are often quite good, but they're often pretty tropey. Like, you know, you know broadly what kind of character you're going to get. In fact, most of these apocalyptic books Get, just just tell me, like, when you imagine who's the protagonist in an apocalyptic fiction series, who is this person? I guess kind of like a rugged, uh, I'm picturing a lot of torn clothing. Is that right? <laughs> a lot of, like kind of maybe a, a rugged person who has like visible scars, maybe like a, a sling of bullets across their chest. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, I, I would say they're always like like uh recently former special forces or something like that so they have they basically have uh, superpowers relative to like particular set of skills yeah yeah i can ask yeah sneak around in the forest no one would see me kind of deal slit a man's throat you know there, there's like always there's just a lot of stuff like that that's pretty goofy so you know what you're getting but sure. climate climate fiction hasn't had that as far as i know if you're listening still at this point and you like literature is there something out there that is about regular people trying to survive in a climate changed world that is not, I don't know, the ministry for the future. It's a really interesting book on this. 
but it's also not heavily serialized, the kind of books that people consume one after the other page turner kind of deal. That's that's sort of what I'm looking for. Is I'm almost looking for something less serious and less artsy than what you described. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would assume it's a newer genre too, right? So I, I think there's definitely still time. And uh, if it hasn't been clear, I'm obviously pressuring you to to fill this void by writing this this book that you would like to see in the world. I'm too goofy. I would write the version that was like too self-aware. Like one of the scripts we were working on back in the day is like the most like intentionally fourth wall breaking, uh, just like satire of rom-coms. And, <laughs> and you're like, or maybe you told me about it. I, I, I've read one of your scripts that I feel like felt very aware. Yeah. And like, there's pluses to that too. It was kind of a commentary on how like, at this point in humanity's life, everything is a reference to something else. And there isn't a whole lot of unmediated experience. Like everything has a link to some book or movie or TV show that you can reference. Your life is just, and if you read old books in the like pre-modern or even just early modern era, there's not a lot of like, oh, have you read this book? Have you seen the latest season of Six Feet Under? You know, like there's like not a lot of. But I feel like if you read a book about contemporary humans, it's like it's like ninety percent of what we even talk about. Yeah, it's complicated. I I think that's one of the issues for fiction writers today. And there's a lot of discourse about this on the internet. Of like, are you being unrealistic for not including social media in your fiction, or mm, is good. it distracting if you do? Because I don't do it not as like a rule, but like I I can't see myself writing down the word TikTok in a story that I write and pulling it off in any kind of way that I would want to read a story like that. And so I do have to kind of contrive these stories to be like a little bit less realistic than they are because like, I just don't want to read a book about somebody on their phone. I'm sure someone's done a good job at that. I've seen it. I think they've gotten better at portraying it in visual media recently where it'll like pop up on the screen and the sound will in the like little bubble. It's even that though, it, it seems smarmy. They're like, Oh, look at us. Like, truly it is the modern era you know like i, I don't know maybe, maybe that's just me but like maybe the first time i saw it because i know in house of cards they would do that a lot where they're oh, like yeah. i think it was maybe the first time that it was like really big yeah i think you're right yeah that's the first time i remember seeing it anyway and like i remember kind of being like cool but also kind of like no thank you at the same time <laughs> it definitely felt novel yeah, I like the old school way of watching uh like tony soprano have to drive to a payphone kind of deal yeah. Something. But wh why do I think that though? Because my life is not like that. Is it just because I've been trained through the way that we experience media that real, real stuff happens on via voce? Like, we're like, what? Why do I think that? Why can't real life happen in the digital uh, age? I think this might be connecting us uh, kind of to what we were talking earlier, just about like the kind of loss of utility of stories is that, you know, I think th this is kind of a cliche criticism now but with how much technology and social media we have we're not as active and uh the traditional idea of like you know the hero's journey you go on you have to fight the monster not just to kill the monster but to kind of learn something about yourself and and to uncover some sort of truth that's like the boon that you bring back to the community and i think in a very real way the boon is just a few keystrokes away like any any question that you might have and then two like i think there's just like a growing distaste for that entire process of of like having to go on a journey to find something out 
I think even beyond just like laziness, I, I think that we've sort of like criticized that cycle to death more than anything. The problems that plague us, people consider very systematic, even hard right wingers are, are citing or like citing major institutions to be the source of their problems. They obviously have a totally different angle than uh, the more left perspective. But I, I think that there is the sense that like we already figured it out. It's just a matter of these problems being too big for us to surmount. I'm kind of kind of spitballing, but that's what comes to my mind. Wow. You think we no longer as a civilization or a culture believe that individual progress is meaningful. That's your thesis I, for this. I think so, you know, and and like it, it's something that I struggle with for myself and, and just in conversations with different friends is that it seems like the more aware you are of the problems that plague society, uh, the less confident you are that anything can be done about them. And so maybe this relates to the climate fiction thing too, is that, and you obviously know much more about this than I, but like, I think a lot of people are super depressed about it. There's climate anxiety. It's, I think maybe a little harder to, to tease out a lighthearted narrative when they're like, Oh, we're, we're ruining the world and the people responsible are in control of these in, enormous industries, or maybe it's not even the people responsible. It's the industries themselves. It's, it's a runaway machine that was started by people that are long dead. And so my gut tells me, I don't want that to be the end of the conversation, but I, I think that does explain a lot of the paralysis and like unwillingness for people to engage in uh, individual pursuits. Well, there's a big story that happened a couple of years ago, and I can't speak with certainty on exactly how it played out, but the idea that the carbon footprint was a corporate invention to take scrutiny off of corporations and to get people to thinking about their own liability climate-wise, and to have them stop criticizing oil and gas. And uh, I'm pretty sure that has been pretty well validated at this point, but I can't say with certainty that it is. And so it could be the case that maybe we do believe that actually what you do as an individual doesn't really matter. Like, sure, you can sort your recycling better, you can fly less, but like if the earth is going to collapse anyways, like why even bother? I think you're right. I don't know that we could say it's a fully explanatory uh, solution that you're posing, but it's oh, in the cultural I'm, mix for sure. Yeah. Well, what, what it makes me think of too, and I, I've I've made a lot of TikToks about this, is that I think people have a tendency to jump to the the most massive scope in any conversation. And so like, I, I like to make TikToks about the importance of community, that just like as an individual, it's important to find a community that you love and that loves you super hard might take your whole life but that that's like a worthy pursuit and people immediately will say well and i mean until capitalism's over it's not really possible and it's like well you're not wrong like capitalism does make it very difficult to form communities and especially like if you're fighting for your life paying rent and uh buying food but at the same time i noticed that we we take a small individual problem and immediately blow it up to the most massive way to think about it is that the only way to approach this conversation is on a massive scale with huge statistics and analyzing major institutions. And this makes sense because you want to be accurate. But I, I characterize this in Lionel Lancet in The Right Vibe, my second novel, as like taking a bird's eye view of everything that people think what truth is, is to sort of like remove the individual and only look at everything in a huge context. And there are different applications of this that it's like, oh, if you're an artist, you explain that story to yourself in terms of fame, that if you even say you don't want to be famous, it almost sounds like you're creating a uh, self-defense story or, or not. So you're, you're, you know, defending yourself 
by not actually going for it and just saying, I don't actually want that, where it's like you can very validly not want to be famous and still enjoy your artistic career. And I just think there's countless examples of it is that people's scope is often too big and then they justify doing nothing because they're like, oh, the only way to do something is to do it at scale, which is funny because you can't ever achieve scale if you don't start with what's right in front of you. And the funniest part of this critique is that it almost sounds like Jordan Peterson saying you have to clean your room first before you full circle try to change society. So like, I want to, I want to call that out. That is, that's not what I'm saying, but I, I think people go too big picture too soon. Is not literature inherently personalizing. You have to write about characters that people care enough to stick with for several hours. And this is small. Literature is almost inherently small. And stories that don't do this, I often associate with things like science fiction, which they often come from a place where they have a theme or a world they want to create and explore. What if we all lived on Mars? And and it was an anarchist Mars, by the way. <laughs> rather than rather than someone coming out at the other the other end of the telescope and saying like, "Oh, I have an idea for a character." It's like it's like a a mixture of some of my the traits of my parents and like what they would do under these circumstances. I have such a strong vision of who this person is and what it's like for them to be in the world. Those those are two entirely different ways of being an author. And there are probably several more additionally. But do you agree that literature just has a personal touch or at its best, it should come from a place of character? I think so. Yeah, I. you could probably show me an example of something that doesn't do that. And it's I very- like plenty of books that are like exploring worlds too. It doesn't always, but the literature that I like love the most, it's because it comes from a place of character. I think the first book that I had this with was Anna Karenina. I told you about where I was like, Oh, I, I like, I feel so much so strongly towards Anna and count Vronsky and then Karenin too. And like all these people, I'm like, I feel like I'm all of these people simultaneously. And that to me was a sublime achievement that has been very rarely matched. Yeah. Seth Rogen, of all people, has an interesting insight on this, is that like amateur writers will often make a blank main character because they want everyone to relate to it. And so they'll name it like John Everyman. And (laughs) and the funny thing is that like, I mean, obviously, you know, unless you're a very talented writer, it's probably not going to be very good. But he said that one of the things that he discovered was the more particular you make the character, the more universal it feels, because Hmm need to have an individual in order to like project yourself onto or to like evoke those universal qualities. And so sometimes like as a writer, you're almost doing the audience's work for them by trying to make it super universal when really your job should be to make it particular, choose your world, choose your details, don't make it so abstract. And then the reader will bring that to the table. They will see themselves and they will see the whole universe within those particularities that you chose. So insofar as we're trying to figure out how to write climate genre fiction, low fiction here. (laughs) Um, Did you ever play that game, This War of Mine? No, never heard of it, actually. Uh, I don't know to what degree you're a gamer, but it's really amazing storytelling. It's based on the siege of Sarajevo. And you're not, it's the only war game I've ever played where you weren't actually a soldier trying to kill as many people. It's just surviving, like scavenging resources, trying not to get hit by a sniper. Like if someone... There are cases where it'll put you into scenarios where you can try to save someone who's about to be abused by a paramilitary soldier. It can go badly. You can end up harmed or killed. And then what happens to the people who live in your house now that you didn't come home that night from scavenging and like their emotional lives? I've never seen a video game do that. It's really, really successfully beautiful storytelling. That's something, there's nothing else quite like that. I feel like if you were going to write genre fiction of climate and you would presuppose that the world is going through 
hard times, you would want to write it in such a way as that. It doesn't have to be nearly so dramatic because not all things related to climate change severity will be nearly so extreme, though some, in some cases, surely will. But that's the kind of humanizing that I think tells a good climate story that is not abstract, it's not polar bears, it's not parts per million, but it's about individual lives and tribulations. I think that's where it would need to go. I think you're right. Yeah, well, it's it's making me reflect on that, that it's like, it. yeah, it is, it is kind of hard to personalize a problem that it doesn't have a lot of personal experience to it. It's like, obviously, there are different natural disasters that are being attributed to climate change today. So there's always that angle. But like, I think for your average person in the suburbs in the Midwest, even if they believe in climate change, it's not a very in your face problem for them. So like evoking those particularities might pose a challenge unless you go straight apocalypse route that like we're fast forwarding to collapse, knock on wood. But that's, I think, how you would maybe create more of a, a genre tale is to make it like more of a, a personal experience for that protagonist. There's also so, there's so much apocalyptic fiction too. It's just, I don't see any of it being climate oriented. I wonder if part of it's politics because a lot of the survivalist literature is quite right wing. I've I've read a couple or I started a couple where I'll hear dog whistles. I'll be like, what was that last thing he said? I was like... <laughs> It's like, I'm pretty sure I know where this is going. And there's a lot that are just, you could just tell are written by quite lonely men. Lonely men in bunkers are writing bad books out there. I am unsurprised to learn this. <laughs> no, yeah. There's actually like some of the best zombie books are written by a woman in, in Oregon that I've read, where I felt like they had actually like really developed characters relative for the genre and was pretty impressed by but it was such a, in some ways, it's such a low bar. You're like, oh, it's not just like a gruff former special forces soldier trying to save everybody. Oh, it's someone who actually has doubts and concerns and fears and <laughs> mixed emotions about things. Wow. Like, man, that's pretty, it's a low bar, isn't it? Kind of, maybe I should write this. Maybe I could have a, uh, people who care about climate change, would they want to read a series like this? I don't know. Well, yeah, because like especially, and I'm not as familiar with this style or the genre as much, but like from what it's sounding like, is it's a little bit of like uh, wish fulfillment on the author's part. That Big they're time. Like, Many of these people will be disappointed if an EMP does not destroy all <laughs> cars past 1978 or whatever. That's the vibe that I get. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. It kind of makes me think of the uh, Onion headline that it's like, man imagines himself to be four times as effective in a fight as he actually would. I, I, I'm terrible at uh, remembering funny things when I try to reproduce them. That's a great one. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, that that's kind of what it strikes me as, but then I think that that's right for parody too. My head immediately goes to like Tropic Thunder that, yeah, the, the like special forces guy, but they're really kind of satirizing the performance of that and acting more than that character type in general. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, lot to play with there for sure maybe i should it sounds fun although writing projects are so so did we ever watch that i ever send you that like uh that hamlet 2 clip from when he's trying to write hamlet 2 when he's like crying yeah he's like crying at like the beauty of it and like oh my god i love that movie i do too and i love like it cuts right after he's crying and he just looks at his cat and goes who the do you think you are yeah yeah 
then he's like walking around with a shirt and like no underwear on like playing on like a like a handheld keyboard you're like yeah that's writing i've always felt like on the brink of madness writing a large large project oh 100 percent. i think i think that is part of the fun and uh, I, I have definitely cried while writing something before. I'm, I'm not saying that it was good, but like, yeah, I think you do kind of have to work yourself up into different places and, and mind that in a lot of ways. One of the other series I, I read, I gave up on it, but it was very much like being a boat bum in South Florida. And it was basically like an extended Jimmy Buffett song. So if you were a fan of anything Jimmy Buffett, absolutely not. <laughs> you, could, you could just exist in that world where you're like kind of a smuggler, but you're not like one of the mean like cartel smugglers. You're like one of the cool like Hawaiian shirt guys just trying to make a little like dirt bag living. And there's something about it that I was really comforting and also quite there's gonna be a better word than genre. It's just, it's just tropey and repetitive, but good. Anyways, sounds like I got to write this now. Is that where we're headed? Are we agreed? Yeah, I, I think so. I expect it on my desk in two weeks. Get going. Yeah, good grief. Well, I'm actually ha- happy we talked about climate stuff nearly enough, I think. And hopefully, I don't even know, how do you even end this? Postmodernism, metamodernism, a whole bunch of weird literary ramblings. I hope you enjoy it. I think it's safe to say that there's nothing else like this in the entire climate podcasting space. So for better or for worse, it now exists. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks for calling me up. We, I think we planned this initially maybe two and a half years ago. So I'm glad we made good. I'm glad we made good too. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this show. It was a fun one, an oddball one, and one that is near and dear to my heart. If you like what we're doing here, I don't know if your app has a rating uh, service on it, but many of them do. Apple Podcasts does, Spotify. Give us a great rating and review. Helps us get this out to more people. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. and We will catch you next time.